Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. We are so excited to bring you today's episode featuring Michael Moss. He is one of Dr. Tarman's bucket list guests, so we were so pleased when he agreed to be on the show. In fact, this Pulitzer Prize winner is in the process of reading Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, right now. In our conversation today, we uncover some of the tricks the food industry uses to get us hooked. How when he released his first book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, he never used the word addiction, but how now, eight years later, it's in the title. What changed? And his thoughts on whether big food is creating and manipulating keto products to get us hooked on them as well. We hope your takeaway from this episode is that getting hooked on these products was not your fault, that you can clearly see how the food industry used your biology against you, that we, in a way, are their human experiment, and that when they make the most amount of profit off a product, it means they've created something so addictive that it's irresistible. We hope this helps remove some of the guilt and shame the diet industry makes you feel, especially now we know that Big Food owns a lot of these companies also. We also hope you use this knowledge as your superpower. We wanted to reinforce that by choosing to eat unprocessed foods, you are not only doing the best thing for your body, but also your brain. And when you see the commercials on the TVs and the products in the grocery store, you see them for what they are scientifically created drug foods. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am co-host of Food Junkies podcast, along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are thrilled to be interviewing Michael Moss, the investigative journalist who has the inside scoop on the machinations of the food industry. Michael Moss, a Pulitzer Prize winner, is an investigative journalist with the New York Times. He has also worked for such prestigious papers such as the Wall Street Journal and is an adjunct professor at Columbia School of Journalism. He is author of the bestseller Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us and has just published a new follow-up book called Hooked, Food, Free Will and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. In his first book, Michael highlights the rise of the processed food industry and how it uses salt, sugar, fat to snare us into eating foods that, yes, are convenient and cheap, but are extremely unhealthy and extremely profitable to the food industry. In this new book, he takes the next step and explicitly connects the dots between the food giants and our addicted brains, laying bare the actual route by which the industry can push their enticing and profitable foods, even at the expense of obesity, illness, and depression and beyond. And what are those? What is that enticing route but addiction? So, Michael, if you we could start with, oh, by the way, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And if you can um, add anything I haven't mentioned, and then let's start with your definition of addiction, because that is essentially the fulcrum of the book or the point of the book. Yeah, it was to sort of look at that question, you know, can we can we compare some of these food products to to cigarettes and alcohol and even some harsher narcotics? And if you had asked me that question five years ago, I would have 
thought that that was a little ridiculous. Um, but I have to say I've come full circle uh, knowing now from the people I've interviewed and the documents I've seen that there's sort of little doubt that many of these food products we're talking about are even more problematic, more addictive than even some of the harsher drugs. Wow. I actually didn't expect you to say that so clearly. I mean, that's where we're coming from. Wow. So actually, that is what I'd like to flesh out. But you have in your book the definition of addiction. I mean, we have the DSM-5 definition, the American Society of Addiction Medicine definition, but you have a very simple one. Why don't you give that to us for the public so that they, they can get on board with us here? What do you mean by addiction? Yeah, and as backdrop to that, you know, the, the definition of addiction has changed over the years, and the medical profession, profession sort of shies away from even using it because it's it, it can be sort of a vague term, more useful maybe in sort of lay conversations. And I was I was tracking kind of the whole history of how addiction was defined by psychiatrists, addiction experts. And there were years when there were a bunch of criteria. And for a substance to be addictive, it had to cause withdrawal symptoms and tolerance levels. And then the more we, you know, understood drugs and how they work in our systems, the more we realized that not all drugs have those characteristics either. And so they gradually kind of broadened and broadened the definition of addiction until the year 2000, when none other than the CEO of the largest tobacco company at the time, Philip Morris, in legal proceedings, was asked what his definition of addiction was. And he said, Addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. And that was, yeah, right on, right? I mean, that describes, uh, you know, a, so many of our relationships. But, but the reason for me why that was such a significant find in looking through the legal records is that, A, Philip Morris had completely flipped around and now was conceding after years, decades of denying that smoking was addictive. But at the time, Philip Morris was the single largest manufacturer of processed foods in North America. And, you know, surprise, surprise, even its own people, its top executives understood the power of those food products to cause not just us, but them to lose control, to lose willpower, free will in choosing foods. The top lawyer for Philip Morris, I sat down with him and he he told me how he could take a pack of cigarettes out in the morning, smoke one cigarette during a stressful meeting, put the pack away and never have any inclination to grab those cigarettes again until the next business meeting the next day. But he couldn't go near one of Philip Morris's other gigantic brands, Oreo cookies, <laughs> for fear of opening the bag and eating half of it, losing control. So that would be the only... That would be the only other thing sort of I would add to 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 Philip Morris's definition is that there's some element of loss of control in 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 the definition of addiction. And, you know, knowing, as you know, addiction can happen on the spectrum, that loss of control Mm. can happen in terms of binge eating, eating disorders of all kinds or at the other end of the spectrum, simply simply this huge kind of over deep dependence we have on these ultra-processed foods, convenience foods, on a day-to-day basis that kind of represents a loss of control of, of, of our health in the long term and, and, better, and better eating habits. 
Okay, so the, it, it, this is this is just great. So I love this definition. And just for the purposes of the listeners, I want to repeat it. Addiction is repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit with. What was the that uh, added piece that you said with with some la- lack of control? Well, that sort of implies. I mean, that that I mean, I think the right. definition is perfect as it is, but it sort of implies, you know, a yeah. loss of control. Yes. So, so before we get to calling to task the food industry, Clarissa, uh, let's explore uh, just for the purposes of the, the. I mean, the thing about your book that's so fabulous is that you actually show the behind the scenes of how these foods become addictive. So, so let's explore just for the for the people who haven't managed to read book one. And by the way, folks, you have to read book one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to read book one to get book to their essential both readings. But anyway, Clarissa, take it from there. Yeah, well, for me, I have to say, Michael, that reading your first book was monumental to me in my food addiction recovery journey because in that book, I learned about the scientists in labs making food addictive and making us their prey. And so one of the terms I learned about as well was bliss point. And I actually named my practice reinvent your bliss point, because I do believe once we eliminate sugar from our foods, we can find that tastiness in whole foods again. So can you share with our audience a little bit more about bliss point and how how the food industry uses it? Sure. Bliss Point is their description of what happens when they engineer their products with the perfect amount of sweetness, not too little, not too much. It sends us over the moon, their products flying off the shelf. You know, I was incredibly fortunate to, 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 to be able to meet one of the icons in the food industry, a consultant who helped engineer Bliss Point's for, for a variety of sort of big iconic brands in the grocery store. And he walked me through his recent creation of a new soda flavor for Dr. Pepper, in which he started with some 60 versions of sweetness, each one just slightly different than the next one, and subjected those to thousands of consumer taste tests and then threw the data in his computer and did his high math regression analysis thing. He was, he was trained in psychology at Harvard and, and high math at Queens College. And, you know, out comes this chart, which is like this bell-shaped curve, kind of the one that kids get graded on in in school, except that the top of the curve is not the dreaded middle C, but the perfect amount of of sugar. And he coined the phrase, the bliss point, to describe that. And it's such a good description because the brain just sort of blisses out when you get that perfect sweetness. And when you talk to nutritionists, you know, the problem isn't just that these companies have engineered bliss points for soda, cookies, ice cream, things we know should be sweet and, you know, in some cases can can treat those like treats. They've marched around the grocery store adding sugar to things that didn't mm. used to be sweet before. So now bread has added sugar and, a, and an engineered bliss point for sweetness. You know, some yogurts came to have as much sugar in them um, per serving as ice cream, the pasta sauce aisle, right? There were some brands that had the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies with a sweetness in a, you know, in a half cup serving. And what this did was create an expectancy in us that everything should taste sweet. So when we drag ourselves over to that small part of the store where nutritionists say we should all be spending more time, you know, namely the produce aisle, and you start getting some of those other basic tastes that Aristotle first wrote about way back when, sour and bitter, your brain is sort of rebelling and your kids are rebelling if you have kids, you know, 
remembering and being and being sort of immersed in in the world of sweetness that represents so much of the grocery store. Yeah, I think sometimes in addiction, we refer to that as euphoric recall. And I love some of the terms in your book, uh, you know, craveability and moreness, you know, those are addictive words. And the food industry has all these tactics to help get us more hooked on their foods. So there's vanishing caloric density, sensory specific satiety, and mouthfeel. Can you speak to a few of those terms and just kind of elaborate on them so our audience can understand how the food industry uses them? Yeah, I mean, I'm an investigative reporter, and so I'm trained to follow the money, right, as, as you've heard. But I fell in love with the language that they use, describing their efforts to maximize the allure of their products. And look, I should say, I still don't see this, or I don't want to see this as this evil empire that intentionally set out to make us you know, overweight or, or out of control or, or otherwise ill from their products. These are companies doing what all companies want to do, which is to make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. But I was incredibly lucky to come across this trove of documents that took me inside the industry. And it was those documents that enabled me to meet key insiders who opened up and told even more secrets. And the the overwhelming sense you get from that material in those interviews is that this is an industry that's driving day and night to get us to not just like their products, but to want more. And so they study our biology and they look at um, things like what happens when you put, you know, a puffed cheese treat in your mouth and you don't even have to chew it, right? You just press it against the roof of your mouth and it melts because the magic formula of so many snacks is 50% of the calories coming from fat, from the oil in the products, and it just kind of flows over your tongue. They discovered that that sends a signal to the brain that the calories have disappeared as well. And so you don't need to worry about eating the whole bag, and they call that the vanishing caloric density. Mouthfeel is their description of that fat sort of oozing over the tongue, because unlike salt and sugar, which get picked up by our taste buds, fat oils um, get picked up by the trigeminal nerve in the mouth, but also go directly to the reward center. And then salt, one of their favorites, they describe as the as the flavor burst, because it's typically on the outside of snacks, on their foods, and it's the first thing that touches the, the the taste buds and gets the brain excited. You know, my mouth is watering just hearing you talk about these things. The, the, the one thing I've always wondered when I when I read your first book, and I mean, this is, this is the wonder of you being an investigative journalist rather than an academic, because as an academic, you'd be, you'd be kind of pigeonholed into the specifics, things that people are legitimately studying. Otherwise, you wouldn't get published. But you are able to find information like this trove of the data that you found and actually have the luxury to spend time and, and, and write about that, which I just, I just think that that's amazing in and of itself. Anyway, there's, go ahead, Clarissa. I don't know where I was going with that. I just wanted to say that that was the- You were going with your craving for potato chips, I think. (laughs) And that's a funny thing that happened to me too, is like, you know, talking to these these engineers when they were describing their efforts, 
you know, I actually got cravings for yeah, their products, for their right. products too, exactly. right? That's right. <laughs> what, 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 I know what I was wondering about was, was where is their literature? I'd like to read their literature because the information that you got, it's like, that's not available to the public. We can't actually protect ourselves until we find your books like yours. Well, their literature is what you read on the front of the labels. I mean, they're all that's about right. marketing exactly. to us yeah. and finding the ways to you know to press our emotional buttons because by and large in this country we're not eating because of deep biological hunger um, many of us anyway most of us but we're eating because of some other either habit ritual time of day or or these emotional you know stresses and we saw that with the pandemic how our eating habits changed you know, a lot of us thought that the pandemic would at least get us away from the bending machine at work, one of the most treacherous corners of the right. ultra-processed food industry. But what happened? We turned our kitchen cupboards into bending machines because we went to the supermarket and having you know, the power of memory and recall was such that we were buying junk that we hadn't had since we were kids and loading up on it and bringing home sales soared for the snack companies they were they were ebullient about it um because again their ability to sort of capitalize on not just not just the ingredients of the food that's in the package that you can see on the label the salt sugar fat but these other sort of basic instincts of ours that draws to their products which is really kind of the focus of the, of the new book hooked yeah uh, okay so so just to get back to the concept of addiction so you're, you're describing how they've made these foods addictive. And I and a, a number of years ago with your first book, I think you were not so willing to call it an addiction. And But now it seems like you've turned the corner. So would you go as far as to say, I will call this flat out an addiction, and then therefore the implication, which means some of us just have to flat out not eat this stuff? Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, sort of how you respond to, to their products and your relationship yeah. with them is going to depend on kind of where you are on the spectrum. The other, the other key part of that definition <clears throat> from Philip Morris, the largest processed food company at the time when they came up with that definition, yeah. was yeah. the word some, right? Sort of repetitive behavior that some people, yes. not everybody loses control with a bag of Oreos or a bag of chips or hot pockets or frozen TV dinners or that 90% of the, the middle part of the store that has the ultra-processed foods. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that so many of us lose control in, in a steadier day-by-day -day way. I mean, look at the obesity rate in this country. Right. Now it's 42% and, uh, among adults. And that's, that's on top of another 30-plus percent who are, who are overweight, not quite clinically obese. And and to me, that represents of losing control over your diet, over your eating habits. You know, maybe not kind of in the in the in, in the way that that binge eating might represent. But so it depends how you deal with their products, which we can talk about. I think we will. You know, it kind of depends where you are on on, yeah. on that spectrum, and there's going to be different strategies. But but there are lessons from the world of drug addiction that you yes. can draw and use in, in thinking about how to deal with these food products. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm an addictions doctor. And one of the things that when you said some people, they, immediately my thought was some people not yet. But, you know, if we're constantly being exposed to these foods over time with the continual uh, exposure and the continual, you, you talk about it on some other interview, how quickly some of these foods are now uh, absorbed into the body. Right. Uh, you know, we're, we, if we're not addicted now, we will be if we continue, especially after COVID. And, you know, right. And so, you know, a couple things come to mind in terms of why I think these products are more addictive than drugs. One, it's yeah. the food environment, right? You can't get away from food in these products like you can theoretically from a drug. We all have to eat. You can't go cold turkey and stop eating. You know, yeah. and I've met people who've tried to cut sugar out of their diet and shopping for them is so difficult to find products that don't have any sugar or refined flour in them. It's a bit of a nightmare for for them. And so so that certainly is that that's one way that food is more problematic besides being relatively inexpensive and accessible and the constant barrage of of marketing. And then the second way that it's it's more problematic is speed, which you just mentioned. Scientists have done tests to measure how fast addictive substances get to the brain because that's a hallmark of addiction. The faster they hit the brain, the more powerful that signal is and the more apt we are to respond impulsively. And it turns out there's nothing faster than food in, the, in its ability to you know, right. slam the brain with the craving because, interestingly, it kind of cheats, right? So they did this experiment and sat people down and asked them to push a button when they tasted sweetness. Yeah. And they put a little sugar on their tongue. Well, yeah. the sugar doesn't go directly to the brain. It has this apparatus that we've evolved, we set up in our body to attract us to food. And so the taste buds pick up the signal of sweetness, send that signal to the reward center of the brain, which then told their fingers to push that button. And they were pushing that button in eight tenths of a second. Ah. That's how fast sugar, for example, the same is true of salt, um, can hit the brain. By comparison, it can take as long as 10 seconds for, for cigarette smoke to fully engage the brain. Yeah. Alcohol and, and narcotics, you know, fall kind of somewhere in that range. But but when I saw that experiment, it sort of put the you know the expression fast food, or now I call them fast groceries, in a whole new light because everything about these products is designed for speed, from the manufacturing to the to the way it can stimulate the brain to to the to, you know designed to have a snacking, to eating the food really quickly, opening the package up, eating it mindlessly without paying attention to it. Absolutely. So, so that's kind of the second big way that I'm convinced these products are even more problematic than, yeah. than harsh so, drugs. So we're, we, um, the audience that, of people who are listening to this podcast are many um, identified as food addicts. And so they're going to, what you're saying right now is going to ring true for them. So is, is it possible uh, to even survive in the food industry world uh, if you already, if you're part of that some population? I mean, is there any friendship that we can have with the food industry in the way that you've described it? Or friendship basically, well basically what the question is can we moderate or do we have to actually just sus- yeah i think it stuff? i think it takes a lot of work I, I met a man named don in ottawa canada who who by some miracle you know went from 360 pounds to 180 pounds in 13 months he was incredibly fortunate 
He didn't have children to worry about or even a spouse. He had a steady job. He could focus his entire effort on losing that weight. But when he lost the weight, that's kind of when the big problem started for him because everything about his body was urging him to put that weight back on. He had to do things like put locks on his kitchen cabinets to slow himself down from grabbing food in that kind of in that sort of unthinking, willless rush. Sometimes he would get on a bus, an intercity bus, to go between cities just to eliminate any chance that he could have any interaction with his trigger foods. And yeah. he does shop in the supermarket, but he uses a list and he sticks to that list. And it's basically basics, um, staples. You know, one of the characteristics of ultra-processed food or convenience food is that it's been so highly engineered and technically formed that you can't even recognize what the basic foodstuffs were that went into it. And so, you know, Don is in the store, but being incredibly careful to buy the staples. If he's in the cereal aisle, it's the plain oatmeal and on and on. So that's how that's how he deals with being in this food environment is being extremely careful when he shops and is working really hard. And six or seven years after that weight loss, he's still having to work really hard. Yeah. First of all, Clarissa and I totally get Don. Like we get it. We've we've been there. If, if if I haven't been there, I know lots of people who have. So this this is a classic food addiction behavior. And uh, what we would say is that seven years later, the addiction continues. It's actually chronic and progressive. And it isn't actually the fact that the person's lost weight. Like I know there's a kind of thinking that if you lose weight, the body wants to put it back on. That's one way of thinking of it. Another way is to think once you're an addict, you're always an addict. And the moment you have the cues, which are all over the place, you're forever fighting those. But put Don on a on a, a desert island and he's going to be feeling much more comfortable so now that we've is there any more anything else that you want to talk or illustrate in terms of how the food industry has made foods addictive before we get to the uh, politics of this so so i think that the real stunning aspect to me from the research i did for for hooked was that how they're using us to make their foods addictive right and as one scientist said to me you know michael it's not so much that food is addictive as that we by nature are drawn to eat, even to overeat. And yeah. the companies have changed the nature of our food just in the last 50 years to which our biology hasn't had a chance to catch up. She views this as this mismatch between us, our genetics and the food environment. And so yeah. what are the ways we're drawn to food? We love food that's cheap. That, that requires the least you know, amount of energy expenditure. Go back to hunter-gatherer society. It made a lot more sense instead of running down an impala for dinner to grab an aardvark that's sitting there. And so what, is the, what does the industry do? They have these chemical laboratories that mix and match their formulas, their ingredients for their products. And their chief benefit to the food industry is to reduce the price of the products. Because even if they knock 10 cents yeah. off a box of breakfast toaster pastries, that's going to be enough to get us excited. We're drawn by nature to variety, right? Humans became adept at eating all kinds of food as they migrated across the globe, even whale blubber, right? So variety is something that we love and it gets us excited. So what do the food companies do? They go into an aisle like the cereal aisle and create 200 versions of sugary starch, 
knowing that that smorgasbord effect, as some people call it, right? Going down the line and seeing something new and grabbing it, even though you're full, will get us. And, and all the varieties of, of, of potato chips and on snacks and, and, and on and on. And then the third big way that they took advantage of our natural inclination to eat and overeat, because overeating was a really good thing until 50 years ago, by and large, right? I mean, putting on body fat was a great thing. It enabled our brains to grow. It enabled us to get through hard times. It enabled us to have more babies. What the industry did, though, was create or turn overeating into an everyday thing. And one of the powerful elements of their of their engineering of food products is to pack in the calories because we love calories. We have sensors in the gut uh -huh. and possibly in the mouth that can tell us how many calories there are in what we're eating and what we're drinking. And possibly even more than salt, sugar, fat, the brain loves calories. And so what did the food industry do? They packed in the calories densely in these products. I was looking at a bag of corn chips the other day and had 1,440 calories in a fairly small bag that a lot yeah. of us would eat in one sitting. So to me, that was the most powerful aspect of the situation we're in, which is that they're almost using us as unwitting conspirators in, in their effort to to keep get us and keep us dependent on their, yeah. on their you know, you know, that, that, uh, I, it's actually the trailer of your new book is the, uh, the, the Doritos, the 1400 calorie Doritos, and you actually burn them. Right. Right. Well, you know, I heard, I heard about Dor the Fritos actually, oh, Fritos, um, yeah. but you know, I'd heard from people who climb mountains that they love Fritos because they have the opposite problem. They need massive amount of calories, especially climbing in the wintertime. So yeah. they'll like take a huge bag of Fritos, crunch it up and sprinkle it over their food. And this is not an everyday habit. This is yeah. in the, the crisis of the moment for them of needing tons of calories. And so I realized that the reason they have all these calories is they're loaded with corn oil. And so, yeah. yes, they also make a great campfire starter if you get stuck without twigs camping exactly. out because you can light them and they it really shows how what what it is we're actually putting into our body which is basically campfire oil but so so now you mentioned a little earlier um i kind of see two sides to you um one is the recognition of the food industry's deliberate intent to uh, make things addictive and but then there's also this uh willingness to say well you know they're not really doing this intentionally to make us fat so Clarissa and I and, and people behind us, we want to call the food industry to task. So we're willing to demonize the food industry. What about you? Where's your stand on that one? So being a journalist, I'm willing yes. to sort of give them, I don't want to say the benefit of the doubt, but Elaborate it's enough please. for me to know how they do it, right? Both of these books have been like detective stories for me. Right. And instead of sort of, and certainly holding their feet to the fire, but instead of going further, it's, it was enough for me to show you how they do it. If they want to insist that their intent was never to get us to lose control, it was only to get us to love their products and to want more and more of them. And that somewhere out there in that la-la land, there's a line between loving and craving and losing control, then I'll let them certainly argue that point. But I think the facts and the fact set speaks for itself. Okay. So would it be fair to say that you're content to let the facts speak for themselves? Because your books, both of them, are like, it's like, oh, my God, this is, that's why we love well, the, these books so much. 
because yeah, the facts not only were the facts, there. but they're but they're, not only the facts, but the facts being their documents. But also, I was surprised how many insiders I've met who yes. can't have misgivings about their life work, and so that you meet the question. inventor of the Lunchables who who kind of agonizes that he wasn't able to add like carrots and celery sticks to the Lunchables or or fresh apples, and you meet the former head of Coca-Cola for North America, you know, yeah. South America, who, who walks us through Coke's, you know, ambitious effort to get a Coke in every kid's hand when they go into a ballpark with their parents, mm-hmm. knowing that the memory that created creates will forever associate the soda with that joyous moment. Mm-hmm. You know, you meet people like the chief lawyer, Philip Morris, who didn't touch their own products for fear of losing control. And their main defense was that, look, we invented these things in a more innocent era before society's dependence on convenience and speed grew to where it is before. And I think there's sort of some truth to that, that this is a, you know, this is a box that they opened up and were unable to sort of close. And again, that speaks to, I think, our sort of natural, being naturally drawn toward convenience um, and okay. they're taking advantage of that, exploiting it. I want to uh, stop you there and, and uh, just back a couple of lines there. You said um, something about this was in an era when they didn't realize quite. But you actually say, uh, again, it's like, oh, my God, this stuff that you actually come up with, that they were saying in the time when they were defending the tobacco industry that sugar is actually um, just as addictive. So there they were sitting on that information even then. They, then we not call them to task because they knew <laughs> right, right, right. So when they were denying tobacco being yes. addictive for decades yeah. and using all of their power to deny that, they compared smoking to eating Twinkies and other things like that, right. to food products. So that was when they were in the phase of denial. These industries go through phases. Okay. The first one's denial. Yes. The second one is delay. It's like when we, okay, we get it. These guys are figuring us out, but let's see if we can hold them off long enough to change our business plan or avoid regulation. And then there's the third phase of sort of pretending to yield, you know, pretending to capitulate, which is what the processed food industry is actually in right now. So so the comparison to Twinkies, but that was so, that's, that's what the CEO of Philip Morris's definition of addiction was so interesting to me because Uh. When Philip Morris conceded smoking was addiction, you know, that definition, it had to sort of suddenly think to itself, wait a minute, we've been comparing smoking to some of our food products. What do we do now? And well, that's, you know, they were in a little bit of a pickle there. Yeah. And if you don't mind elaborating a little bit more, because you do it very nicely and hooked, the relationship, I mean, it's so, oh my God, between, I mean, you keep saying Phyllis Morris, but there's more than just that, Philip Morris, the food industry and the tobacco industry. Can you just give us a a little paragraph uh, relationship for people who haven't read your book yet? Yeah, so two of the largest um, food companies were owned by two of the largest tobacco companies. The first was R.J. Reynolds, which purchased Nabisco, the big cookie cracker manufacturer. And then the second was Philip Morris, which back in the late 1980s bought the old company General Foods and then Kraft. And then later Nabisco and Philip Morris became the single largest manufacturer of processed food in North America up until... The early 2000s, when they they shed their ownership of the company and and and, and they they separated. 
So just to clarify, there's like eight or nine uh, major food industries, and at least half or more are actually uh, governed by what used to be the tobacco industry. Yeah, I mean, not quite half. So there were really just two of the eight or nine or 10 large companies, but they were big. And you can see, you know, the dealings that the tobacco, you know, people in the companies had with their food managers. And I actually found it you know, really interesting and sort of counterintuitive. Yeah, for years, the tobacco guys were coaching their food managers how to sell product in the grocery stores, especially at the checkout lane, where you could buy cigarettes, but also snack foods, knowing that our vulnerability is highest when we're standing in, in line waiting to waiting to pay for our groceries. That's when we'll get off our shopping list more than any other time in the grocery store. But but what I found really intriguing, and I wrote about this in Salt, Sugar, Fat, is that, you know, in 2000, when Philip Morris conceded addiction, it looked at the food site and it privately said to its food managers, you guys are going to have as much trouble over salt, sugar, fat, compulsive eating and food, obesity, as we are now with smoking and cancer, and you need to do something to lessen your own dependence on these ingredients to sell your products. You know, I found that sort of stunning that, you know, big tobacco would be telling big food, you've got to get your act together here, or you're going to get in trouble like, like we are. And where do you think that, that, that they are on that, getting their act together? Are they getting their act together yet, or are they still kicking and fighting? Yeah, so this was potentially the good mood, um, a good, the good news in, in, in all of this. After Salt Sugar Fat came out, and I take no credit, I can't take any credit for it all, more and more people began caring about what they put in their bodies, and, and began that began translating into purchase decisions, and the junkiest food sales went down, not a huge amount, but enough to put the industry into a panic. And there was this huge meeting in Florida in 2015 where the heads of the biggest companies met with investors from Wall Street. And and some of them were incredibly forthright. The head of Campbell's Soup said, look, we're losing or have lost the trust of our consumers and we've got to do something to win that back. And so they proceeded into this third phase I mentioned, which is you know, yielding, capitulating. But I think we have to ask the question, is this like really real or not? Because they're they're doing a series of things now that I find make it even more difficult to walk in a grocery store and tell what's good for you and not so good for you. Can you give an illustration of what you mean? Yeah, so a lot of these things are actually oriented toward helping us avoid losing control over their products. So protein. Right. There's some sense by nutritionists that protein can help reduce cravings and increase satiation. Yeah, it's so complicated and you have to think of the entire diet and the whole situation. But so what did the food companies do? They added a little extra protein to things like sugary cereal. Can I interrupt you for a second? Am I going too far by saying that they might even push something like the keto movement? Because in the keto movement, there are, you know, food plans, there are a lot of tricky foods that are that are processed, that are not real. Could that be one of the ways that they're doing that? Oh, sure. The food companies really, really, they love it when we fight amongst ourselves over eating strategies and debate uh-huh. whether sugar is the worst enemy or fat or salt, because they can ma- manipulate sort of the, the balance of those three ingredients really easily by just sort of adjusting them. So yeah, they could embrace keto. What they did do was embrace fiber. 
Because, you know, we have this sense right. that lots of fiber in our diet, nutritionists tell us that, right? Will slow us down, you know, reduce the potent for, for cravings. Well, it turns out the fiber that these companies are adding to their products doesn't have that function at all. Some of them are created in the laboratory, but they're adding it nonetheless, and it's there on the on the nutrition facts box as fiber, but really not doing what you what you think it might um, what you think it might be doing. And then lastly, there um, yeah. now, and this may be sort of even more problematic, which is that knowing how concerned we are about sugar, they're moving through the grocery store, replacing some amount of sugar in their products with fake sweeteners that don't have calories. Um, and look, you know, I wouldn't want to advise anybody who who needs a diet co soda to get through the day to, to not do that. Um, if that works for you, great. But the science on what these fake sweeteners are doing to our biology and our head and our gut is still out. And yet, yeah. You know, you know, in, 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 you know, as we have in years past, we've turned over that whole decision making to the food companies to to make that decision. OK, you worried about sugar. We're going to put fake sweeteners in there and, and worry about the science later. Yeah. Okay. Great. Now, uh, so that that's uh, uh, you've given some nice examples of, I guess, this third phase. What about I, I? Something that I read and hooked that just astounded me was you talked about the. I mean, this is a real irony that height spot Weight Watchers. So, so the food industry has actually moved to the next stage of okay, if there's obesity. Well, we'll help you with that too. So yeah, that's uh, exactly what happened. And that's exactly what past, happened. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, but if just if you wanted to elaborate on that, I think you said Unilever, which sells Ben and Jerry's ice cream, bought SlimFast. Like, oh my God! Right. So we've got something noticed, wrong with the picture. Heinz noticed that we were losing control of food to the extent to which we were gaining weight, and looked at that situation and looked around and had an opportunity to buy none other than Weight Watchers, and so it did. And you know, several of the largest processed food companies followed suit and bought things like SlimFast and Atkins. And, oh my God, um, Atkins too? The South Beach, more recently, South Beach Diet. But not only that, they went into the grocery store and started creating new versions of their products that were slightly less caloric They yeah. called and called those diet foods. And so, you know, you got the situation where Nestle, which makes Hot Pocket, was now making lean pockets and they're there next to each other in the grocery store. And you have to decide based on whatever your stress level is at the moment or your ability to even focus on what you're eating, you know, you're obligated to decide, well, which one am I gonna buy this week hoping that it's going to help? So yeah, it was, it was a terrific business plan for the industry, you know, get us fat on one hand and sell us something to to help us gain control of our eating habits on the other hand, which, yeah. which by and large didn't work as well as people people thought it would. Not the business plan, the dieting part. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now, now I want to get to the, the sort of politics of this. First of all, the first book and now the second one are pretty explicit. Any any pushback? Has there been any like you're you're saying stuff that they must be horrified to see in print? So any pushback on the first book? Are you getting any so far on the second? Yeah, I mean, I get the sense that they wish I'd never been born. Uh -huh. um, but 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 that the net result of the book was hard but fair. And again, yeah, that's you true. Have to remember the 
books are based on their documents and their own people talking and, and keep big people, not like little guys, right? So, so it's hard for them to sort of argue. I was actually shocked when Salt, Sugar, Fat came out and I got, for, I got a call from none other than Nestle, who I had described the hot, po they own the Hot Pockets brand. I had described it, I think, as a poster child for mindless eating in the book. I thought I had tormented them as much as any. Yeah. They invited me in yeah. to talk to their research and development people. And I thought, are you crazy? And they said, no, uh. we're trying to do the right thing by consumer health. And we need you to come tell us all the things we did wrong to motivate us to do right. And the extent to which you, you want to give them some, you know, benefit of the doubt, the problem is that they're as hooked on making their products cheap and convenient as tasty as we are on buying those products. And so symbiotic relationship company. Yeah. And I even said to Nessie, look, I see you cutting back on salt, sugar, fat, but what are you doing to turn your product into what all nutritionists want you to, which is to stuff that thing with broccoli rob or, uh -huh. or Brussels sprouts. Um, and, you know, you get kind of this blank look because those are that's really expensive to do. That would raise the cost and that might diminish right. the flavor profile and the allure. And so exactly. even if they're well-meaning, these companies are finding it difficult to truly play a, a meaningful role going forward. Do you think there's a good guy in the industry like there was with that uh, ice cream? I can't remember the name of that fellow, the ice cream uh, empire that had that son who spoke out against his uh, family. Can you remember what it was? It was Haagen-Dazs or something like that. Somebody spoke up. Is there somebody in the industry that, like us, is horrified, maybe not, I mean, just and is trying to make changes from within? The head of Coca-Cola quit and went to work for a carrot farm. Oh, my God. Selling carrots with the same marketing techniques that he used to sell soda. And I thought that was ingenious because, and in fact, I did a little experiment when I got, when I got a, an advertising agency to create a fictitious campaign for broccoli. And I wrote about this in the New York Times. And the very first thing they decided in taking on this incredibly tough mission was there was no way they were going to sell broccoli as being healthy for us because the government's been telling us vegetables are healthy, eat more for decades, and we haven't eaten more. So they were looking for clever ways to have fun with fruits and vegetables and selling them. So, so I love this kind of situation where some big players in the industry have switched sides and are using you know, some of their ingeniousness, cunning, if you will, to sell food that's actually good for us. Well, was it successful, the carrot farm? Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Still the second largest or the one of two big carrot farms in the country. And I think the advertising campaign was successful. And actually the broccoli campaign became reality when some broccoli growers picked up on it and it works. You know, there's a structural problem in, in the food industry, which is that vegetables are a commodity and it it's hard to get a broccoli grower to put money in a kitty to market broccoli when it's not his or her specific broccoli, but everybody's yeah. versus putting tons of money into marketing Oreos and Doritos and, 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 and that. So that's the, that's the problem when it comes to something like advertising and, and to, to increase the attractiveness of produce. Okay, so now now um, we've got your book, uh, we've got your both books, and um, I, what would you advise um, 
Well, I, I guess this is a twofold question. What, what would you advise the public now that we know more about the food industry? What, what would you tell the public? What can we tell the public in terms of the information that we How can we use your book? Right. So I still believe that sort of knowledge is power and knowing all the tricks they use to get us to buy their products oddly can help us make better decisions about what we eat and how much. But the added lessons from looking at the drug addiction world is that when you're facing a craving and you're facing kind of the loss of free will in a a food decision moment, you need to do, you need more than just knowledge, right? So if you're at the end of the spectrum where you have total loss of control, you're the lesson from the drug and you're going to be looking for lots and lots of help from other people, um, from group therapy, from strategy, from nothing else is going to, well, I shouldn't say nothing else is going to work, but that's, that's proven in drug addiction and yeah. it's working in food addiction as well. We are right on the same page because that's exactly what we're saying. Yeah. You know, if you're sly, if you're down the other end of the spectrum where your main problem right now is that 3 p.m. craving for a cookie, right? That's irresistible. It comes over you and you'll get up from your laptop and walk into the kitchen and grab that cookie. The lesson come from the drug addiction world is that no matter what your strategy is for dealing with that, whether it's getting up and stretching or calling a friend or eating an alternative food like a handful of nuts to stave off that craving for cookies, if that comes on at three o'clock, you better be executing that alternative plan at like 2.55 before the craving comes on. Because, you know, I love these scientists who divide our brain into the go brain and the stop brain, right? The go brain is the the deep instinctual part of our brain that gets us to do, you know, life-saving things like flee from 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 danger and eat right uh-huh. and then the stop part of the brain is there called the executive function it's where free will is willpower it's yeah. there to sort of go wait a minute michael i'm not really sure we need that 3 p.m 3 p.m cookie um yeah. and and what happens is in these craving situations is that go brain sort of takes over the entire brain and puts the stop brain to sleep and i and I think the other big lesson from hooked and salt, sugar, fat, though, too, is that long term, you know, I think the strategy people can be looking at is finding a way to change how they value food. That's harder than it seems because, you know, a lifetime of bad eating habits is really hard to change. But, you know, if you go to Starbucks and you see the counter of pastries, how do you help yourself get from the situation where you're looking at that instant gratification, the taste and the smell and the and the mouthfeel and the bliss point and the fla- flavor burst of that pastry to where you're looking at and thinking, hmm, how am I going to look in a bathing suit next summer? Or how am I going to look in the doctor's office 10 years from now when they're yeah. looking at my heart and that accumulation of bad eating? So so I, I, I love some of the experts I've met who are working on you know, ways to change how we value food rather than let the food companies dictate those values, you know, to us. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And a lot of what you're saying is exactly the kind of stuff that we're on board with. Okay. So now the the political thing, what can we do? So there's Clarissa and I representing, you know, this whole uh, group of people who are saying, oh, the food industry has really, you know, created big problems for addiction. What can we do to push back against good food? What would you, a big 
big food. Sorry, what would you recommend? <laughs> well, you know, look, being an author, I'd say first buy the book. Yeah. Um, but but you Absolutely. know, get that knowledge, understand what they're what what they're dealing with, and then there's so many people out there working on sort of pieces of the puzzle. I mean, I yeah. would love to have control of his one zip code and do 10 different things all at once to try to change our relationship with food and what we value. And the very first thing you would do is plant a garden in the school so kids can get excited about radishes. But then you have to look at the whole food farming system and and shift some of the some of the 90% of the farming that goes toward ingredients and processed foods over to fruits and vegetables. And so there's a bunch of stuff that you could sort of pick and find people working in those areas that that you know, your, your, your listeners can, can hook onto and, and, and participate in. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's reading the book, obviously there's, there's the, uh, so you're, you're suggesting these sort of small, I mean, there's the obvious one of just don't buy the stuff, but that's pretty hard to do, but give me something that we can give people. So there's, so if you have children, right? Yes, so yes. we've lost home economics in school, yes, which used to right. teach girls, but also boys cook. to some extent. So that would be one of the things I would change too is, bring home economics back, but kind of in a political sense, because kids yep. don't like to get preached to about healthy foods. And yep. They never really have. But in a more practical, political sense of, look, you know, we either let these big multinational you know, companies tell us what to eat, or we just, we figure out what to eat on ourselves. And I, I think kids can really get that. So it's like, have a conversation with kids, either in school or your own household. And you know, look for ways that you could turn the tables on the food companies. Because yes. one of my realizations in writing these these books and being, you know, 10 years at this now is that yes. these companies didn't invent these things like salt, sugar, fat. They stole them from us and corrupted them. And so any any way we can steal those things back to our own yes. benefit. I'll give you an example. You know, in our house, we've cut back on sugary drinks by drinking plain seltzer, because it turns out that bubbles effervescence excites the brain almost as much as sugar. Uh. And think about it. What was sugary soda before it was sugary soda? It was plain seltzer. There's a town in Germany named seltzer because everybody was connoisseurs there and it goes back hundreds of years. And I love so that. Yeah. even my 16 year old has found that the pleasure, the joy of drinking bubbly plain water without the sugar is, is enough to kind of avoid the, the temptation to eat sugar. Another one I love yeah. are frozen blueberries, right? So freezing was invented by farmers to freeze vegetables and also fish. Yeah. Mr. Bird's Eye, right? That was his invention. The food companies took that and turned it into that glop in the freezer aisle, the TV dinners, etc. Well, new farmers have figured out how to put high technology on their farms to instantly freeze and lock in the nutritional power mm. of things like blueberries and so now they have the hallmarks of processed food they're fast i'm sorry they're convenient they're inexpensive yeah. they're really pretty fabulously tasty but they're also really good for you so there's an example of actually even stealing technology back from the food companies and using it. it for our own benefit yeah, that's great. Thank you. So I, I got to ask you one question and before I give you back to Clarissa, and that is, you said in your um, uh, in your first book that you still liked potato chips. Now, do you still eat potato chips? Years yeah, later? I, you know, I hate to even <laughs> say that knowing how hard your listeners have to, to work, but I, I am, I confess, I'm one of those incredibly lucky people 
who can put their hand in a bag and eat a handful and, and, and walk away. And I don't know why, I don't know how it's a roll of the dice, uh -huh. but yes, I, I still, I still enjoy uh, a potato chip now and then. Okay. All right. Okay. You're one of those moderators that we addicts just don't understand. <laughs> I, want, I, get the, I get, I get that totally. I'm wondering if you can speak a little to stomach share. I read that in your book and I really enjoyed the concept of it. And again, for me, it's, it's like, I can't, so I see where their intent may not have been ill at first, but now that they know so much, I can't believe, especially with them making money off of us getting obese and then making money of a, off of us when we're most vulnerable trying to lose weight. So the fact that they just walk around and see us as stomachs and are looking to get some of the, our stomach share, I mean, that's a little yeah, well, ill I intent. Mean, these are companies. They're not philanthropies. You're never gonna. You're never going to get from them any action that 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 jeopardizes sales. Their bottom line, and they will argue that they're beholden to yeah. stockholders as much as they are consumers. And I think that's just a very real world way of kind of looking at them. You reminded me though, because in Salt Sugar Fat, I wrote about Kraft, which at the time was the largest company. A cabal of insiders inside Kraft became alarmed about their culpability over obesity mm. and, and type 2 diabetes and some cancers. I led, you know, Salt Sugar Fat with that secret meeting of the CEOs where they were called together to yeah. talk about their responsibility and obesity. Well, when the Kraft people couldn't get the rest of the industry to follow along, they themselves unilaterally did some extraordinary things to sort of help consumers out. They cut back on their use of salt, sugar, fat. They cut back on their advertising of junk to kids on Saturday morning. Mm. They, they made it clear on package labels just how many calories there were in these packages. But because the competition among food industry is so intense for what you call share of stomach or stomach share, that when they did that, the competitors kind of swooped in and knocked them, you know, they're better yeah. for you products off the shelf. And so Kraft felt obligated to return to sort of its its original strategies. And so do you think if we do like BC just implemented a soda tax and some tax on junk foods and different countries have implemented removal of junk foods from like that cashier area, as well as other countries have even gone so far as to remove the marketing and commercialization of junk food to children between certain hours of the day. Do you think that could be a next step in the right direction? And do you think it'll happen? Yeah, no, possibly. And they're taking it, you know, they're taking, again, a lessons from the drug world, right? Put taxing like cigarettes happen, putting a warning label on them. That seems to have worked fairly well with tobacco or rather that seems to have been the reason that smoking did go did go down so, as much as it did. You know, that's happening in some places. And I love kind of this idea of nudge marketing because it gets over kind of this nanny state pushback. It's just just a gentle way of encouraging people to shop better because look, we love money as much as we do cheap food, right? And so it's also a way to sort of keep your kids from clawing at your legs saying, hey, you want to use your allowance to pay this sugar tax on this soda? Oh, I don't think so, mom. But so, so yeah, I think, I think those things can work. I mean, the issue is they haven't been, you know, they haven't been executed in very many places yet. So I'm not sure we have enough data to know just how effective that could be. And then um, what is the next project you're working on? 
That's a very good question that I can't answer yet. Because, <gasps> secret, secret. Yeah, no, but it's still <laughs> forming in my head. So whatever I said would, would undoubtedly be yeah. wrong. And so I, I won't, I don't want to mislead any of your, any of your. We will be uh, watching uh, and waiting. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, I just have found so much information that in your books that have just helped empower me in making wiser choices. I heard recently you were doing an interview on a show about the new book, New Book Hooked. <laughs> and you said addiction happens in the brain and hunger happens in the brain. And for mm-hmm. me, that was like so monumental because how do we trust our own brain then? Right. Yeah. And the brain is so complicated. Yes. And that's why we need to have those tools for cravings, exactly like you said. I so, think that makes total, total sense as was a big lesson learned from the world of drug and alcohol and, to, and, and tobacco addiction. Absolutely. So where can our listeners find you and your work? I have a website called mossbooks.us. It also has my email there. If anybody mm-hmm. wants to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from them. There are purchase buttons there. They can buy the books. And fun of fun, I'm posting all the interviews I'm doing for Hooked. And so people can follow (laughs) along as as the media interest kind of grows and grows. There have been some terrific reviews lately. Big TV and big newspapers are starting to pay attention. And, you know, starting to build this conversation up over that central question. Can we call this stuff addictive? And what lessons can we learn from from other addictive substances. So um, so, so I'm, I'm feeling really great about that building conversation and the, the country and the whole world. People are calling from other countries. You're making a huge difference. And at the Food Addiction Institute, you know, we're using some of this information to try and get food addiction in the DSM, in the ICD, so it does become more recognized. You are our hero. <laughs> well, thank you. But I'm just a journalist. You're making the big difference. People themselves are making the big difference. I'm just helping a little bit. So we have a signature question, and it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction or addictive processed foods, what would it be? Yeah, so when I was young, I was a bit of a latchkey kid, and I ate Pop-Tarts when I came home from elementary (laughs) school because nobody was there to stop me. What I didn't realize is that 40 years later, I would walk into a research factory for Kellogg's and be hit with the smell of Pop-Tarts from a giant vat that had gone bad on the assembly line they were dumping it in. And that aroma triggered the memory of that childhood eating and habit forming for Pop-Tarts that took me all the way back instantly to my latchkey days. And so I think what I would have told myself back then, and I wouldn't have listened because I was only, you know, nine years old, but it would have been, you know, you're starting, Michael, to sort of form eating habits that will be with you for the rest of your life. And so it maybe behooves you to think twice about about those those eating habits because it's a lot easier to form good habits than it is to change bad habits back into good habits. Uh-huh. 
Okay, well, thank you, Michael Moss, for this interview, a fabulous interview. Uh, folks, Hooked is a must-read book along with Salt, Sugar, Fat, because the two are one of a kind looking at the food industry itself. It looks at how the food is engineered to be addictive how uh, the, and the rationale that the food industry uses. And essentially, the book, both books are a call to arms. We need to fight back, and this is the information that we need. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you both for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>